You're listening to Rooted, a podcast by the Association of Black Psychology Student Circle. In this episode, we have an extended conversation with Dr. Thomas Vance on postdoctorate life and what it takes to build your brand throughout. Ashe. Hey everyone, welcome, welcome to a new edition, another episode, technically second season I guess of the Rooted Podcast by the ABCI Student Circle. We're here with a very, very special guest, Dr. Vance. Hey. Tell him about yourself. I'm Thomas Vance. Uh, What do you want to know? I want to know everything. Where you're from, like how you got here. Just give me the give me the Instagram bio. Give me the Listen, give me the intro. I was born by a river. Isn't that what Sam <laughs> Cook said? You know, yeah. So I'm from a small town, more cows than people, called Waycross, Georgia. Hey. Uh, Thirty minutes from Florida. Uh, then I moved up to the Atlanta area to you know University of West Georgia, up in Carrollton, Georgia. Uh, the oldest of four children. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like long walks by the beach. Uh, what, what, what do you want to know? Okay. Well, so like, as I said in the beginning, we're going to be talking about, you know, kind of brand building and what life is like immediately after you graduate. So I want to know, I guess, well, first and foremost, how did you get into counseling psychology? Yeah. So I knew I wanted to be a, a, a psychologist uh, well, emerging psychologist since I was in sixth grade. Wow. So I was like one of those kids that always asked questions. Why? You know, when I, you know, pledged my fraternity, I was always asking why, you know, <laughs> always asking teachers why. Uh, and then I was just fascinated by people. And, and even though I didn't talk to people a lot, everybody always came to me to talk. Uh, and everybody would tell me their own personal life business. And uh, it was fascinating. Uh, and then also my, my parents, both of them are in a similar field. So my mom's a social worker okay. uh, and at a nursing home and she deals with like Alzheimer's. And, and my dad mm. uh, was also a mental health professional working with substance abuse. And so growing up, I would go and watch him do like his group meetings. And uh, and I was like, well, how can I do that? But better. Wow. And, and, and so, yeah. And also it was a little bit of study for myself and like understand myself and this strange, awkward being and, <laughs> and just make room for myself in this this thing called the world. Wow. Okay. So it was almost like you were like destined, like your parents kind of were in similar fields and kind of from looking at their experiences, it kind of set you down this path. Yeah. That's interesting. And I mean, moving forward, everybody has unique experiences once they're in the program, like getting there is tough, but once you're in it, it could be tough. Even getting to college was like a challenge for me. Like, we'll talk about that. Yeah. So, so most people don't know. So I went to a, a small agriculture high school uh, and it was called the Ware County School of Agriculture, Forestry and Environmental Sciences. So uh, in my past life, I, I can sane fish. I can, <laughs> you know, prescribe burning. I can, you know, I, I'm not afraid of turkeys and cows and chickens. <laughs> and 
and, and, and so that, that was like my background. I studied horticulture and, and forestry and environmental sciences. And uh, that was like my big background. And I was number 10 in my high school class and I had a 3.8 GPA and I was captain of the basketball team and Shout out. Uh, you know, president of the math team and science team, academic team. And uh, so when it was time for me to go to college, like I knew I was going to go to college. Mm-hmm. And so uh, then I had to take something in Georgia called the SATs. Oh, boy. And and I probably bombed it. I'm, I'm not sure if you can get even a lower score in, in the SATs, <laughs> but I'm sure I achieved that because I'm a great achiever. And, uh, so so I, I got that. Uh, and, and I couldn't get into no college at all with mm-hmm. that score. I applied to almost every school in Georgia with that SAT score and got rejected from every school. Wow. Uh, and, and so people and God's counselors at my school was like, you know, you have a great GPA, you have a 3.8 and, you know, you have all these, you have other activities that you're involved in, you're in leadership and uh, the SAT and I took it twice and I took the ACT and I just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what happened, I was on wait list. They wanted me to go on probation to different colleges and, uh, they really suggested me to go into a community college and transfer. Uh, and so I was like, I'm not doing that. I don't want to stay here in this hometown. My hometown is really small and, and really just limited and it's literally just black and white. And so it was roughly in, so I graduated in class of 2007. And so for me, I applied to the university of West Georgia. I just knew that I was in Atlanta area, had no idea where it was, uh, in like the, the month of like February. And I, I got in. Mm-hmm. And so my first time going to that college was uh, uh, orientation, was my first time ever visiting and going. I just chose it. I was going to go do it, and I knew I was going to just thrive because I had something to prove to everybody that, yeah, I might not do well or on the standardized test, uh, but I know my own abilities, and, and now I have something to prove to everybody. And that's when I just went to college and dominated. Dominated. <laughs> Because I think you finished a little early too, right? Uh, no, I finished on time, but I, okay. I finished, I graduated at 21. Crazy. Um, so it's just my age is like a little bit younger. Okay. Yeah. Just just a rookie of the year in all aspects. Just come Listen, through. everybody, somebody has to do it. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like you achieved, you did, you know, fantastic work after you know, some, some, some trial and tribulation, yeah. you know, along the way in college. So what, or, or how rather, did you get to the process of applying to a PhD? What brought you to that space where you realized you know, I, I could do this. I can, I can do this. Yeah. So when I first went to college was like my first time meeting black people with PhDs. I never met anybody with a PhD until uh, I went to college. And so my mentor um, had a PhD in political science and he didn't know anything about, you know, psychology world. Um, but he just knew that, you know, you need a, a PhD to get in, and do psychology if you want to be a psychologist. Uh, so that was always in my back pocket. So I would travel with him all different conferences and, and present on black men and retention in college because uh, that was his interest. And so I just did what he did. And so that was my first time really going to conferences was with him. And, and it was more in like higher ed realm. Uh, and so what happened is uh, when it came to the Black Male Summit out at the University of Akron, I was a, a sophomore in college and we was presenting research on uh, black men college retention in a community learning center uh, that we had at my, my college that I was a part of. Uh, and really talk about the black male college experience of connecting other black college men together. 
And so in that audience, there was um, a professor from the University of Akron, and his name was Dr. John Queener. And he was like, oh, like you're interested in psychology? And I was like, yeah, like I don't know how to get there. And I never really met a black psychologist, but I, I have an interest in psychology. And he was like, well, keep in contact and, and let me know when you finish college and, and we'll link that way. So once I finished that, that, that talk, that session, I went into the hallway and uh, my mentor, who's great at networking, he was like, oh, he seems like a popular person. And, and so I was like, oh, well, let me introduce myself. And I was like, hi, my name is Thomas Vance. And he was like, well, this, this gentleman was like, oh, my name is uh, Dr. Joseph White. Hey. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And he's like, yeah, they call me the godfather of black psychology. And I was like, oh, wow, really? And, and he's like, yeah. And he's like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, oh, I want to be like a black psychologist. And he was like, well, you have a couple minutes. Let's sit down. Let's write out you the plan. And that is how I, I stuck with the plan, as he was saying. And uh, he told me, you know, you got to stay in contact, stay networked, link up with the right people. Uh, you're going to have lots of trials going through this process. It's not easy. Uh, and I literally exchanged numbers and emails, and I would stay in contact with him throughout my college experience. And when I graduated from college, that's when I linked back up with Dr. John Queener. Uh, and was able to get to the University of Akron that way. Uh, wow. and, and so then the rest is like history. And yeah, it's just like an incredible, I mean, it speaks to the the, the importance of like good mentorship and networking, right? Like, yeah, so I value mentorship. Yeah. So like that's like been my platform since since forever is mentorship and cross-cultural mentorship. And it doesn't mm-hmm. matter, you know, gender or, or race, like we all have something else that somebody else can offer. Mm-hmm. And so what I, I learned throughout my college experience was to find multiple people that I can learn from in different areas. So mm-hmm. my original mentor, uh, who was, you know, his PhD in political science, I learned how to navigate the political world of network. Mm-hmm. Um, and he always told me that your network is your net worth. And we would go around and talk and he will say, you know, yeah, you know, most people will say that it's all about, you know, who you know, and, and that's inaccurate. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? Like, that's the, that's the old phrase that everybody knows. It's always who you know. And he's like, yeah, but do you know that me and you, we, we know Oprah, but does Oprah know you? And I was like, no. Mm. And he's like, you know, always remember that it's not about who you know, but it's also who knows you. So when you're making these network and you're making these connection, make a, a strong enough connection that they actually know who you are mm-hmm. to be able to open up the doors. Wow. It's incredible. Um, and so this mentorship kind of guided you along with your upbringing that you spoke about towards the University of Akron, right? Yes. And I'm curious, you know, it's a you know, fantastic program. Yes. It's also in Ohio. So I'm yes. curious what your experience was like. Well, unfortunately, with that good old Georgia education, I was like, where the heck is Ohio? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so somebody said it was in the Midwest. And I was like, well, hey, that's the only place that I, I, I got accepted to. Mm-hmm. So I was going there. So I, I went there and did my master's there and finished the master's and then started the PhD. But the PhD was a, a struggle. Uh, because there was nobody there that looked like me. And yeah, I had my, my new mentor, Dr. Queener, there. Um, but there was no classmates there that looked like me. And, uh, and it was in the middle of this foreign place. And it was my first time like leaving home away from my, my hometown and, and being it from the South. And uh, so that was completely different. And, and so I entered the program with one of my classmates. His name is Will. Uh, we'll say, and and uh, we made history because we were the first two black men to ever enter the program. Wow. And and to me, I was just like, oh, okay, I'm just glad I'm here, uh, glad I made it. And and so we linked together a lot and did everything, and we moved in sync and 
then you have to deal with being called the other person's name. And I'm like, man, there's literally only two black men here. <laughs> and I still get called Will. And, and I had to check professors over and over and over. And like, my name is not Will. Uh, we look distinctively different. And I literally sit right beside you every day in class. And you still call me the other person's name. Uh, but it was hard because I had to adjust of what it meant to be a PhD student, uh, and I didn't understand that full concept because nobody teaches me this, and I, I didn't, I didn't have mentorship to or examples to say, oh, step one is this, or this is how you should carry yourself, or this is, you know, ask these type of questions. I, I had to kind of like stumble and and lean on, you know, Dr. Queener to give me that feedback. Mm-hmm. But somebody my age, I didn't have that. Uh, so my first year, um, I remember with work study, I mean work assignments, and some people get teaching assistantships, and some people get research. And uh, for for Akron, what happened is they just give you a list of what you're going to do. I got my list, and and my list didn't say nothing on there. It just says you know seat the chair. Mm-hmm. So I saw the chair, and she's like, oh well, we don't know. We're trying to figure out what we're going to have you to do in this program. And so for right now, just come here to the office and just, you know, sit here in the corner and, uh, you know, just answer phones or, and just probably be like admin style. So I was like, well, cool. That's fine with me. I, I guess this is what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's what I did for, for many, many weeks. But unfortunately, they had multiple people scheduled at the front desk uh, to accommodate all of us. So, uh, of course, they placed me in this back corner uh, of of this building right by the vacuum cleaner in the corner with the lights were turned off. And that was my position. And every day, I didn't make a peep. I didn't complain. I went there and just sat there and I was like, well, this is where I need to be. Uh, this is where they told me to be. And, and so I just sat there and did work and did readings. And uh, then a couple weeks later, uh, I got pulled and, and somebody said, you know, you've been here for numerous weeks. You walk in, you don't, you know, smile to everybody. And, you know, when you answer the phones, you know, you don't sound like excited when people come to the door. Um, I want you to know that, you know, this other person that sits up front, you know, white woman, she's so she's so happy and she smiles. And, you know, you come in here and you don't really say anything to anybody. And why do you sit in the back corner of this building anyways? And I was like, well, you actually put me there. And then so the secretary got upset and she was like, you know what? You know, I'm tired of this. I can have you do whatever I want you to do. You know, if I wanted you to have to scrub the ground and clean the floors, I can have you do that, too. Wow. And this was in front of everybody in the hallway, all professors. And I just sat there and that was my, my introduction to a PhD program and being just what it meant to be black in this space. And so for me, I just sat there and I was just quiet and then I went downstairs and to the bathroom and just cried because I knew that if I would have said anything or raised my voice, then that's when my, my, my black maleness would have came out mm-hmm. and would have been perceived as I was threatening or disrespectful. Uh, and, and I just had to hold it. And then I just waited until I was able to talk to, you know, Dr. Queener and just tell him what happened. And he was able to like remove me from that whole situation completely. Uh, but then it kind of, that's that, that was like my introduction to what it meant to be a PhD student at a PWI. So so you found out kind of early on that. Yeah. Is gonna be is gonna be a task. Yeah, so that was just year one. (laughs) Year one, right? That was my first semester. Uh. I mean, you've described being in an extremely tough situation at a fantastic program, but you know, it's a it's a private white institution, uh, you know, PWI. Yeah. And um, you know, typically when we see people that are heavily involved 
with the Association of Black Psychologists or you know Afrocentric psychology, they they come from HBCUs. You yeah. know, they're they're immersed in in that culture and that history. So I guess where did that come from for you? How did you gain the 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 amount of knowledge and experience that you that you managed to gain while you were in your program? Well, for me, having all those negative experiences at my PWI. Uh, I had a lot of just rage and anger about just race uh, and what it meant to be black and, and really specifically towards white people. And I didn't understand this at first. And I went to Dr. Queener and I'm like, I'm just angry. I'm just tired of all these white people. I don't even want to sit in this classroom no more. And it's, and he just started laughing. It's like, you know, that, that's, that's normal. And so then that's when I called Dr. White. And I'm like, Dr. White, like, I don't know what's going on with me. Like, I'm, I'm trying to stay quiet, but I feel just angry. And uh, like, I want to just do everything black. I don't want to do nothing white. I don't want to sit with white people. I don't want to be in the classroom with them. I don't want to, you know, read nothing about no CBT. And and he's like, oh, <laughs> do you know that what that is? And I was like, no. He's like, you're like in that emerging, emerging stage of that racial identity uh, that, that uh, William Cross talks about. I was like, well, what is that? Like, how long, when is it going to be over? And he's like, you know, it, it sometimes it lasts for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years. I said, well, I can't graduate like like this. Like, I need to finish the program. Like, I can't be angry. And, and he's like, well, you know, eventually it's going to come over. I remember when I went through my stage and, and, and then that's when all my mentors started telling me their experience of when they were in that moment of just really just pro-black, immersion, all black history and knowledge and and so that's when i connected with the abc abc chapter in cleveland uh and that's how i started getting into to the fold of going to a conference and uh then also i worked at a community mental health agency in akron called minority behavior health group uh, which is an african-centered community mental health agency that practices specifically with african-centered philosophy and, and model uh, and treatment modalities, specifically with, you know, optimal theory by our very own, you know, Dr. Linda James Myers, uh, who I had a chance to, like, talk to and, and learn from and and then use specifically, you know, belief systems analysis, uh, which is a more of an Afrocentric, African-centered worldview perspective. And so as I was going through the program, I was in the classroom studying CBT, you know, uh, uh, Rogerian therapy and, and all the other stuff that, you know, the so-called good white folks wanted me to learn. Uh, and, and also, on the other hand, I was also doing my own study and my own research or an African-centeredness and what does that really mean and what does it look like for me and my black people. And so learning them both and being, you know, proficient in both of them at the exact same time is, is, is what we all have to do to, to make it. And so on one hand, I would go to class and I can recite to you all these other theories, uh, but I knew what I was using in my sessions and it was the African-centered worldview. Mm -hmm. And that's what really kind of helped me process my own feelings and rage and, and work through my own racial identity and what it meant to be you know, black in the US. And, and so that's, what I, that's how I really just navigated and really use my Afrocentric worldviews to, to help me. It really served as a buffer and a protective factor of understanding and knowing who I really am. Yeah, and I'm curious, so, you know, I, f I feel like some people might have a, a stigma associated with even gaining an Afrocentric experience in psychology. Like it doesn't, it, it won't translate when you're applying to internship, it won't translate on the job market. Yeah. Um, but here you are, you know, you're doing pretty well. So I'm curious, yeah. what was that like once you finished 
you know, the program. What was that like for you? I, I think you have to really understand what, what does it mean to be African-centered because then once you're really proficient in, in African-centeredness and also the the Western Eurocentric values and therapies, you understand that, you know, one group of, of philosophies uh, uh, stole other ideas <laughs> from uh, another group, uh, which is they overlap and it's not nothing new. So positive psychology is nothing new. Um, as well as mindfulness, and and that's all embedded in Afrocentric worldviews and philosophies um, that white people just don't know. Um, and so, once you're able to study both and understand and get a good grasp of both, I'm able to translate for white people and be like, oh, it's kind of like you know humanistic therapy and and an integrative approach. And oh, you talk about you know DBT and it's dialectic behavior of this both and perspective and an Afrocentric worldview and, and specifically with the BSA we call it this diuntal logic, which means that you have this gray area, this black and white, it's both and perspective, and you're able to overload overlap. And you're able to educate, and and then once people hear that there's a commonality amongst all of the different types of therapies and philosophies, um, and have me still call it Afrocentric worldview, they're okay with that. Wow. Okay. So, and once you, I guess, reach this frontier, I feel like when you're when you're in the program, so much energy goes towards getting through it. Like I need to get out of these publications, these yeah. presentations, just getting through class, getting through these interpersonal interactions, this day-to-day life uh, takes so much of your energy that sometimes until like your last few years, you might not devote enough energy or awareness to that frontier, Mm -hmm. you know, after you finish. Yeah. So I'm curious, when you were out in the world, you know, what was that like? So when you say out in the world, are you out in the world like currently or? So we'll start, I guess, immediately after and then like, yeah, currently. So for, for me, luckily, I, I was able to buffer all my experience with my, my village, who I call my village. So uh, at the University of Akron, now we have a, a strong uh, black population. So I was able to like insulate myself amongst my peers who just got it and understand the same similar experiences. When I was looking for internships, I looked at different sites who can still kind of make me just be my true authentic self in those spaces. And, and so I was able to talk about an African center perspective. Um, and if I saw an internship site that kind of frowned or wasn't really feeling that or, or didn't really approve for me to just be myself, that was a space for me. And so then that's when I went up to Boston and, and went to you know, Boston University Medical Center, specifically the Center for Multicultural Training and Psychology. And when I went there, uh, back then they had a black male director uh, which was just something new to me. I'd never seen a black male director for an internship site. And so uh, with that, he was able to just let me just be me. And they had other black faculty there at in Boston. And I was able to just be myself and he was able to guide and mentorship and also exposed to me lots of other cultural values uh, from across ethnic backgrounds, which was really kind of powerful because then it really shifted and moved my, my own racial identity to a more multicultural framework. And I'm able to still hold on to the piece of being African-centered and also recognize that there's other groups of people that are oppressed and, mm. and, and struggle in different areas. Wow. So you've described, you know, your philosophical and theoretical, you know, journey, uh, becoming the, the the doctor that you are now. Yeah. Um, at a great at a great location at a great site. Yeah. Uh, how do you, how do you get to where you are? So how did I get to where I was? I think internship and, and mentorship 
both at the same time really developed and pushed me to be the person that I am today. So for me, I was only exposed to really just three different tracks. So one track was academia and be a professor. Another one was practice and going to college counseling center. And another one was fully research. And I didn't really see myself just doing one or the other. I, I liked multiple interests and, and, and I wasn't sure just yet. Uh, but I also knew that I really wanted to be in academia for, for many years and that shift as well. Um, I always thought I was going to be a child psychologist and that was going to be my focus. And, and, and I think life really just happens and the universe gives you the experiences and the people that you really need. And, and it really pulls on your own greatness, your own gifts uh, that we all possess. Uh, and so during internship, people started talking about something called a postdoc. And I was like, well, nobody really told me about this in, in grad school. Like I knew it exists. But I didn't know that I just had to do it or the benefits of doing it. So my internship site was really dedicated days and talked about the benefits and pros and cons of postdocs and and or going into the job market and how to really market yourself uh, using your training from my site uh, up in Boston. And so uh, I was like, well, you know, I, I had a rotation working with the Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery up in Boston, and something that I'd never done before, um, and I just loved it, and I thought it was exciting, and it was just amazing to see that the impact in all the trainings and how I can infuse my my African centeredness in this space um, of other group of people who are, are oppressed or or are dealing with a different type of minority stress, and so with that, I was like, well, how can I keep on this track? Uh, and, and, and learn more about, you know, the LGBT population and, and use what I already know about racial identity and, and really target that type of group. And so I was like, you know, I could go into academia, uh, but I am not a, a researcher and I don't have lots of publications out there. Um, and I was like, so I need some more time to, to work on that craft. Uh, and I was like, well, I don't also want to be a full-time clinician. That's not my identity as well. Um, and, and also I, I don't see myself as a solely a researcher. And so for me, I was just going to just bite the bullet and just do a postdoc and just figure out life from there. And so I applied to different places and from VAs to hospitals to, uh, teaching jobs. And, uh, then I saw one, you know, uh, in New York and, and I was like, well, I kind of like what they, they do It's working with this type of population uh, that I am still learning about. And, and there's a market. I don't know many black men in psychologists uh, in psychology who are actually working in the really the field of like LGBT health. And I care about my black people. And so how can I infuse what my I, my beliefs and my values in this specific population that also needs a black therapist, a black future psychologist. Um, and, and so I reached out to this site here in New York and I was just like, hey, I'm looking for a postdoc. You know, what do you all have? And, and they was like, well, we're traditionally a research postdoc. And, you know, um, so come down and just have a chat with us. So I came down here in January and I chat with them and I talked to the directors and then it was like, well, do you have a couple more minutes? Let's introduce you to the main director of the program. And so I chat with her and, and she's, you know, an older white woman. And she was like, you know, uh, if I can give you a, give me your elevator pitch of why you should be here. And I was like, well, 
I should be here because I am the best person that you're going to find here. I belong here because, you know, you're not going to find nobody else who's going to work harder than me than to be here. Yes, I know I don't have lots of publications. And yes, I know that I'm not a full-time researcher. But you're not going to find anybody else who's going to work harder than me and more dedicated and push yourself. And also, I bring something that you all don't have here, which is my blackness. You don't have any other black people here. You don't have any other racial minorities here. That is something uniquely different that I can bring to this site. And so she sat there and smiled and she's like, okay. And and so then eventually weeks went by and they called and they said, you know, unfortunately we don't have enough money to cover a postdoc for next year. And so I was crushed. I was like, oh man, like I really like this place in New York and it's something different. Um, and I don't know what to do. So I panicked and I started applying to other postdocs and I went to other interviews and they gave me offers and I declined them uh, mainly because that wasn't where my heart was. And for me, I'm the type of person, I don't go places or do things that I truly just don't want to do. Um, I learned a lot, especially towards my later years of, of my graduate program, is to be more authentic. Being my authentic self with friends, with jobs, my personal life uh, matters to me way more than anything else now. Uh, and I think that is how I'm able to really make it thrive. And it's really just to be my authentic self. And so if I feel a certain type of way, I'm going to say it. And if I want to talk about my black identity, I'm going to say it uh, respectfully. And I know how to play the politics of it because there's a lot of politics that plays into really succeeding. Uh, and, and so I learned that throughout my graduate program. I took that experience of being told by a secretary that she could have me clean whatever she wanted to do and use that as fuel. Um, I learned how to uh, be political and talk uh, to different groups of people, to directors, to to uh, to various different deans, and uh, use those experiences and my my trials to really move me forward. And so, while I was waiting, it was roughly about the end of April. I applied to multiple jobs in academia all across the country, and then also at a private practice down in in, in D.C. area because I just thought my plan was, well, I'm just going to move down to D.C. That is where I, I am meant to be, to be with all the other black people. Uh, and, and so that was my whole goal throughout the whole graduate school was just to move to D.C. Uh, and just live my best life. Uh, and so uh, didn't hear back from anybody. And, and so that was really just scary, uh, especially, you know, ending internship. You start panicking. It's like, OK, now what? Like I've been preparing all these years for to have a job after you graduate. And I didn't have anything. And so the beginning of May is when uh, my my current place where I am now, uh, this great institute, this Ivy League school here, uh, I I got a phone call and it was like, hey, we would like to extend the offer, but there's a, a little clause. And I was like, oh man, what is that? And like, hopefully this is more money. Uh, <laughs> and it was like, well, we want to make this a clinical and research postdoc. Uh, and, and we know that you want to get licensed as a psychologist and and so you need your hours and we want to train you. And we know that your background is really not research, uh, but we can develop that. That's the purpose of a postdoc. It's really more like an apprenticeship and have you have more hands or experience. And we would like to offer you the clinical and research postdoc where majority of your week looks like half of it is clinical work and the other half is research. And I just took it and I, I felt a, a weight lifted off of me. And it was probably like one of the, the happiest moments like that I, I that I really just have. Like I felt like I arrived. That, that was my like aha moment. Like I've been working hard for all these years and going through lots of trials and tribulations and for this moment, this phone call uh, in the middle of internship. 
And so I accepted it. And then my awesome mentor, who is also out at an HBCU, called and was like, hey, you know, um, if you haven't had anything yet, I can bring you down to this HBCU and you can teach and work in the college counseling center there. And so then I kind of struggle because this is like a, a this is a pop in HBCU. Like I could have had a good time and and turn up every weekend. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I reflected more about my journey and how I got here, what made the impact for me attending all PWIs. And the common thread was visibility and mentorship. Mm. And I knew that with my personality and what I really want to do is be visible for other people who maybe don't see themselves reflected in these spaces and also be accessible. Uh, I had a lot of access to my mentors who guided me um, and and I, I saw them. I, even though they was in different fields, you know, my original mentor was in political science and I had no interest in political science, but he was there. And so that's why I chose, you know, my white institution now, uh, because I have to be that person and I don't know who's watching me now or who's even following my journey. Uh, but I know that I can be that type of inspiration to at least know that, hey, if he can do it, you know, I can do it. And, and that's what I really want to do. I want to be accessible for everybody. And so I turned down to HBCU and went with this current uh, position. And then a week later, every job that I applied to gave me offers and interviews. And uh, I truly believe in the universe that the universe provides you and gives you exactly what you need at the exact moment. And it wasn't that I wasn't good enough, but I had to make sure that I accept the, the destination that I am meant to be on. And that's where I am now. And, and I, I think that I probably would have got distracted if I had multiple offers at the, the same time of people wanting me to go to their schooling or, or institution. Uh, and, and so that's why I chose the path that I went to. You've, you've described, you've described the dream. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people in, in their programs kind of still going through some of the experiences that you shared, uh, do so with that light at the end of the tunnel yeah. that one day I'm going to be visible. I'm going to be accessible. I'm going to be able to do the work that I've been wanting to do since for some, since childhood, for some, since yeah. adolescence, you know, and you, you, it almost seems like you've arrived in this moment, right? Like you finally attained yeah. that position. Yeah. And but for me, I never feel like I arrive yeah. because I feel like if you feel like you arrive, you get complacent. Uh, ah. so, so I always keep myself as, okay, what's the next step? Uh, and sometimes I think that's also a con of mine, a vice of mine is uh, sometimes I don't take a time, enough time to sit and pause and just say, you know, be more aware of the current moment that, wow, you, you made it this far. Yeah. Uh, I'm constantly looking for the next goal. And it's like, okay, yeah, I reached this, this postdoc and it's this elite postdoc. And yeah, you're doing clinical work and research and they have me doing lots of other stuff. But my next thought is, what else can I do to make myself great? You know, I think as black people, we are born into our own greatness. But I think it takes a lifetime to keep figuring out how does that greatness look like for you individually? And I think that's the part that we often kind of lose sight of when we get too comfortable. Like, you all are great being just at a PhD program or a PsyD program, a graduate program. That's greatness. Other people are watching you currently right now, wishing and hoping that they can be where you are currently. And, and we are always looking for somebody else to say, oh, that's where I'm trying to be like. Mm -hmm. um, so you're already alone setting an example of where people are striving to be and hoping to be one day. Yeah. And I mean, before we move, I guess, I mean, you, you, you've discussed like kind of always having the goal, you know, in your mind. Like I've, yeah. I'm here, but what's the next step? Yeah. Uh, I want to stay in the moment a little bit because 
I'm curious because in this moment, I know there's it's complex. There's a lot going on for you right now. Yeah. Um, there is this position that you've described, and there's also you know you're you're burgeoning social media presence. You know, yeah. you're you're a, you're a personality on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, you have people that message you constantly. So I'm curious, yeah. what has that been like to cultivate that, and how has that shifted now that you are in the position that you are? I love it. So my main platform that I use a lot is like Instagram. Uh, and I felt like throughout the years, I was able to use my social media to kind of share the experience. Like that was like my way to let everybody else know that, yeah, like y'all know me individually and personally, and this is your journey as well. Like you're also walking on this journey together uh, because taking an African-centered perspective that you'll know that we're all connected in this journey um, and, and, and that there's no separation. Like this is a group effort. Um, I've been inspired through my social media and I get inspired when people reach out and I get inspired when people say, you know, just watching you go throughout your journey has helped me like apply myself even more or to push my boundaries or to be my more authentic self. Uh, and so that's how I was able to use my social media and to connect. It was hard being in the middle of Ohio and, and watching people on Instagram that lived in New York or Atlanta or D.C. or all these places where they had more of a, a social setting or a social uh, network. And I didn't have that. And so that was my way to just kind of connect. And so I know that other people are now watching my journey or my social media, me living the life or the dream of, of where they are hoping to be. And I want them to also know that, you know, you can reach out to me. My goal of my social media and my media platform is to be accessible and then also to make this an everyday reality for everyone who wants it. Um, you know, I want to be a, a world-renowned black psychologist at whatever institute that I might be at. And I want people or students to feel like, oh, I can reach out to him and he's going to respond or he's going to give me some of his time and just talk with me for an hour. Uh, because that's what got me here. You know, my mentor was Dr. Joseph White and, and he was world renowned and everybody knows who he is. And at that moment when I was just a sophomore in college, I didn't know who he was, mm-hmm. um, but he took his time to just sit down and just invest in an hour, a conversation with me, ask me, what are my hopes and dreams that I wanted to do? And that's what I want to do. I feel like it's, it's part of my mentorship lineage to do that. It's my responsibility to, to mentor others, to make myself accessible as much as I can. Um, and then also show and encourage people that, you know, you are great in your own way. You don't have to be like me, but let's figure out how we can make your greatness your own goal. And I'm so happy that you finished on that note because that was going to be my next question. Uh, but to anybody who follows you on social media, and you should, we'll have his uh, social media named on the bottom of the podcast. Um, you speak a lot about people recognizing their own greatness. Yeah. You know, so what does greatness mean, you know, to you? What is what is what is that? Uh, yeah. What does that term really capture? Yeah, be great. Literally just came out of nowhere for me. Uh, for me, I'm like my own self cheerleader. I talk to a majority of myself, majority of the days, and I'm always talking to myself. And uh, when I think about quotes that I, I might post on social media or a video that I might post, I figure out, you know, what do I need currently? Um, and it's like, you know, I need to keep reminding myself of my greatness because when I leave outside of my African center village or my family uh, of, of black psychologists, you know, I need to hold that inside of me. And, and if you're really African centered, you know, all that stuff is inside of you and you have to constantly remind yourself that you're great because we currently live in a world that tells you that you're not great. Mm-hmm. I'm in lots of spaces that don't see me. I'm in lots of spaces that kind of downplay me or, or, 
uh, maybe not put a lot of value of what I bring to the table. And so being great and, and finding your own greatness. And um, I, th- I think you have to really just focus on how can you make your greatness shine? So give yourself reminders. So I tell people you're great in your own way. You know, you don't have to be like me and, and, and you can be still be great. You know, you don't have to be like the greatest athlete or the greatest psychologist out here. You know, how can you make your greatness your own goal? How do you make it personal? So your greatness should be personal. You know, you can be whatever you do, whatever you want to be, be only great. I mean, that answer in and of itself was was greatness. So shout out to that. Shout out to Dr. Vance always bringing, bring the heat, bringing the heat on all these answers. I appreciate it. And well, I'm curious. So um, you have the social media presence, you know, you have this uh, kind of prestigious position. And I guess one of the things that might be unique for people that maybe they're not as used to while they're in the program is uh, maybe they always knew about their own greatness, but other people suddenly recognize like, oh, this is this doctor such and such. Like I need yeah. to reach out to them to talk about this, to talk about that. What, what has that been like for you? Are you finding more people reach out to you? And if so, like, what is that like? Yeah, uh, it feels like since I got these three little squigglies after my name, uh, <laughs> you know, everybody has been like, you know, army, you know, a great philosopher said, back then you didn't want me, now I'm hot, you're army. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and that's how it really is. It just came out of nowhere. Like, I, I finally graduated and everybody's like, oh, Dr. Vance, like, can you come and talk to here? And can you be on this panel? So I was on a panel last week um, and it was random. I've only been at my current job for a month. And I was like, wow. well, how do you all even know who I am? And it's like, oh, you're the guy from Boston. And, you know, certain groups of people love some Boston. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, y'all can have Boston. Uh, it was cold and, and I didn't see folks like me out there. Say it again. Uh, you know? <laughs> and, and, and so that's the only thing they remember about me. They don't know about my my program that I came from, that I'm from Georgia. They only focus on, on Boston because that's what they can relate to. Mm-hmm. And so also... Being a doctor gives you power. And I don't think we really keep reminding ourselves that how much power that you have with being called doctor. Uh, And for me, I have always been the exact same person that I am. Now I just can call myself doctor officially. And that gives you some type of weight. Uh, I've been saying the same exact thing, the same type of greatness for many years now. Uh, and, And now that I became doctor, it seems like overnight, everybody cares exactly now what I, I had to say or what I had to think of. And, and so, you know, I was on a panel last week talking about mental health and LGBT community. And, and you know, of course, when I look out into the crowd, there's no black faces and I'm the only black person in the room. Uh, and it's just so fascinating because I've just been telling stuff that I've been saying for many years and that I learned throughout my, my program and, and talk a difference between being culturally competent and, and that's how that's inappropriate. And let's talk about being culturally responsive. And people thought that was like amazing. And it's like, wow, I never thought about being culturally responsive. And I was like, you know, this is nothing new. <laughs> like literally it's not new. You know, now that it's coming from a black doctor, it gave it like an extra stamp or, or like I invented the word. And I was like, this is literally, I didn't make this up. Like just read a book or read a, you know, any black journal will still tell you this. Um, and so that's how I was able to like, use my voice. Um, I just created a Twitter w- with my all 20 followers. And this random person <laughs> DM me was like, oh, I'd like to interview your thoughts about, uh, you know, uh, drag, uh, drag kids doing drag and, and transgender population. And what are your thoughts about that? And 
I was like, you were my thoughts? Like, <laughs> and then I was like, well, how do you find me? And she's like, oh, I was just Googling and, and I, I found you on Google. I was like, how do you find myself on Google? So check yourself on Google if you haven't. And so I typed <laughs> in my name and all these things just started popping up. And, you know, my name attached to uh, my, my current university and things I've done in the past. And I was like, wow, that's, that's just fascinating. And so then I also use my social media. So I always follow this group uh, and I want to give them a special shout out, the Black Doctors Matter group. Mm. Uh, the great black organization, support them if you can, get you a cool t-shirt that says Black Doctors Matter. Um, and I told them that I was going to do a podcast and I want to shout them out uh, because I, I definitely believe in supporting black businesses and black art. And, and so I followed them for a while, but I noticed that they, they tend to post a lot about hard sciences, you know, medical doctors and everything else under the sun. And I was like, well, where's the voice for mental health or, or social sciences? So I'm the one who reached out to them. And I was like, listen, I, I glad that you're shining light on, on black medical doctors. Like, that's fantastic. Um, and also, I feel like there's a whole market that we're not acknowledging. Um, is, is that's mental health and the social sciences. And there's a lot of us that's doing great work. And I am not the first black psychologist or black male, you know, PhD that came out in the last five, 10 years. But, but where are we? Like, where, where is our voice? And, and mental health is so important to the black community. And I want to, I want to A, highlight and just let you all know that I'm a black male doctor uh, at this university. And, and I'm also in psychology. Um, and I'm interested just to be featured. And I was like, okay, you can you'd be featured on our Instagram, but would you be interested in doing a full interview? And I was like, a full interview? And I was like, okay. And it was like, well, where's the interview going to like be? And it's like, oh, well, eventually it'll be on our, our, our blog and stuff. And so I was like, okay, why not? You know, let me just, t- but I want to stress and make sure that you all highlight uh, mental health because that's my platform. And I want to make sure that we talk about mental health in the black uh, community. And then, and also, and I said, the only way for me to do this interview, you have to let people know that I'm accessible mm-hmm. and that they can reach out to me uh, to try to figure out ways to connect. And, and so that was part of my personal negotiation is like, I want to make sure that people can reach me mm-hmm. uh, because I think it's so important if, if we're going to start sending black people to that website or Instagram post, I want people to say, well, I'm struggling in, in, in Kansas doing a PhD over there and, and my mental health is struggling. I need some resources. What can I do? I want them to feel comfortable and to reach out to me. Um, and, and I want to be that advocate and I, I don't mind doing that. It doesn't feel like a burden and it's not bothering me. I just want to make sure that our people are taken care of. It's beautiful, man. And I guess in, in, in wrapping up, um, you, you've already given people so many, you know, nuggets of wisdom, you know, about your experience, where you've come from, how far you've come and where your life is like now, I guess what's the lasting if you, if you could boil it down to one lasting message, but, you know, the platform is yours. Yeah. One last message. Tough. Oh, <laughs> man. If I had to think of one last message to just give to AR, our listeners that, you know, our student circle, our psychology, I'm going to share on my social media platforms. And um, the, don't ignore your mental health. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard being a student, a black person, doing any type of doctorate, PhD, PsyD, EDD, just graduate school by itself. Uh, Stay connected. Don't give up. It's going to be hard. I quit this whole program about 50 times already, and most people don't even know that. 
Uh, but it was my community, my, my friends, my people who, A, listened to what I had to say and talk about my, my hardships and, and my struggles throughout this program. And also said, nah, bro, you're not quitting. You came too far. Uh, and, and you need that. And, and, but I also needed that space to just say, hey, I'm struggling. And, and it's okay to, to just struggle because that's, that's what you're going to do. Uh, you're going to struggle and it's not going to be easy. Um, and if it was easy, they'd be handing out doctors to everybody. And, and we hear that all the time. Uh, but don't be afraid to reach out to other people. Don't be afraid to reach out to myself. Um, and Because I might not have the answer, but I know how to find the answer. And, and so I remember when I was getting an interview for the job that I have now, when I say I'm dedicated and I'm hardworking, that's what I do. I don't claim to be the best researcher. I am not the best clinician, um, but I am a, a hard worker and I am a people person. And I, and I want to make sure that that you're you're good. And and so that's what in my 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 platform and something that I can leave with is don't forget about your mental health. Don't forget about your own self care. You know, and whatever you do, be your authentic self. Um, I think a lot of times when we go out these graduate programs or our new jobs, we kind of try to hide different parts or our parts of our identities. And that piece, you know, takes some time to work through. And I feel like for me, for internship was my year of just sitting with myself. I was too poor to travel anywhere else. So you had nothing else to do except sit in the cold and, and, and just deal with yourself, deal with your own self. You know, you know, Socrates once said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And then Malcolm X turned around and said that the examined life is painful. And, you know, when you examine your life, it's painful. And, 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 but ignoring your life and unexamining your life and different aspects of who you are, it's not worth living because that means you're not living your true, authentic self. So if I can leave you with anything, it's be your authentic self and protect your peace. Dr. Vance, thank you so much for coming through yeah uh, to the listeners this has been another episode of rooted um peace peace <laughs>